Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 3rd of August and this is episode 172. On today's podcast, I talk to Matthew Ball about his research into the community of Sevenoaks, Kent, during the Great War. I spoke to Matthew from his home in Sevenoaks. Matt, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Uh, thanks, Tom. Well, uh, I think I've always been interested in the uh, in the Great War. I actually read history at Leicester University in the early 90s. Um, and it had always been the topic that fascinated me, really. But I hadn't properly looked into it in, in research terms until I moved from Blackheath to Sevenoaks in about 2008. And actually just doing a sort of Google search where you, you, know, you check for any nasties near the property you might be buying um, in terms of planning and so forth, up came this story of around 10 local lads who all lived on the same road and gone to the same school and didn't make it back from the Somme. So... That was really uh, always at the the back of my mind, really, at some point to to look into that. And then being a genealogist and a historian, uh, I met through a a mutual friend, a chap called Simon Last, who uh, runs Charmwood Genealogy um, over in uh, in Southend in Essex. And Simon's actually written a couple of books on Framlingham and Albra uh, on the war memorials there. And that triggered me to think, I must go and get the Seven Oaks book. And there wasn't one. And so I just felt, what would the anniversaries coming up? 2014, um, you know, my, my natural interest. I'd look into it a bit further. And then it just, it didn't really stop from there. Let's start at the beginning. Where exactly is Seven Oaks? <laughs> well, Seven Oaks, no, there are seven. Uh, we lost a few in the storm of 87, but there are now Seven Oaks on, on the vine in the heart of Seven Oaks. Uh, Seven Oaks is about 21 miles from Trafalgar Square. We're in northwest Kent. Um, so it's it's uh, not it's prime commuter territory, actually, for, for London. And uh, that's what a lot of people, a lot of residents do and have done since the coming of the railway here in the 18, in the 1860s. Uh, so that's where we are. So what were Seven Oaks like in 1914? What, what did the area look like? What, was, what did the population do and what were the principal industries? Well, it's interesting. It was a time of change, really. I think the 1911 census shows there are just under 11,000 residents in, in the town itself. And obviously you have the surrounding uh, villages as well. Seven Oaks for a long time had been a primarily rural and agricultural community. In fact, the, the cattle market only disappeared in the last 30 or so years, which was opposite the main train station. And it was primarily agrarian. Lots of people were labourers on the land or market gardeners and so forth. But the arrival of the railways did a couple of things. It allowed more prosperous people, the, the middle class, to move out and be easily able to commute into London. And so you get a number of merchants and businessmen and and young clerks and so on, all commuting into the city or elsewhere. Uh, You get these great houses, this programme of of building uh, those larger uh, residential places for for that sort of person. Um, But also you get the expansion of of what we call the Hartslands area. That's actually where I'm calling from at the moment. And Hartslands really was the great expansion um, from Seven Oaks for the more urban labourers, you know, the work and uh, lots of people involved still in rural types of trades, but there are lots of bricklayers, uh, 
lots of uh, clerks and, and postmen and, and all of that sort of thing. So it was quite a, a mixed community. You also, um, most people uh, may have heard of the National Trust property Knoll, which is the home of Lord Sackville, was for the time the home of uh, Vita Sackville West, the, the writer. So we were surrounded by the grand houses, if you like, of the nobility, because you had Lord Hillingdon over at uh, Seal in Wilderness House. Uh, you had the Montreal uh, estate with the Earls Amherst. Earl Stamford was at Chevening. And so there was uh, a very structured hierarchical uh, community here as well with, um, you know, a lot of those people who served those estates uh, later went off to war. And of course, that had consequences as well. So talking about, so what was the response to Lord Kitchener's call for volunteers in 1914 and 1915? Well, I think approximately around 250 people, it was estimated by the local paper, the Seven Oaks Chronicle, were already serving at that time. Uh, then obviously the yeomanry and the territorials were, were mobilised. And of course, the regiment that we most naturally associate here uh, with is the Queen's Own Royal West Kent Regiment. And many men were already serving or quickly joined with the um, Territorial Battalions, uh, particularly the 4th Battalion, we were G Company here in Southern Oaks. Um, and G Company went off with the rest of the 4th um, to India, where they spent the majority of, of the war, freeing up the, the regular army to, to go elsewhere. So many men began to, to join that battalion. And then, of course, we, we see recruitment into the, the service battalions of, of, the, uh, of the Queen's Zone, particularly the 6th and, and, and the 7th. Uh, there were lots of large open-air recruitment uh, meetings um, for, for you know, members of the armed forces, but also appealing for special constables and stretcher-bearers and volunteer forces for the, uh, you know, the people who um, couldn't perhaps uh, serve at the front, but nevertheless could help in, in local home defence and monitor the, the railways and, and things like that. There was an initial wave of enthusiasm. And then I think the papers begin particularly to sense that, you know, some bachelors and clerks are, are holding back and, and things like that. And you get um, the vicar's wives, there's a marvellous woman called Lillian Gilchrist Thompson, who's the, the wife of the vicar of uh, St Mary Kippington, which is part of Seven Oaks. And she speaks at a public meeting and tells the young women of Seven Oaks to say to their young men, well, if you're not volunteering, if you're not good enough to go to and volunteer and serve your country, then you're not good enough for me. Um, and a very stark sort of uh, in, injunction to the, the Bachelors of Seven Oaks. You don't get POWs battalions in that real formal sense here, obviously, but you do get men joining up together, men who have, been on, you know, particularly on, on Cobden Road, where I'm calling from now. Lots of men who've been to the school at the top of the road all joined up together. They served in the 6th and 7th battalions of the Royal West Kents. They sometimes wrote um, home joint letters and, and they all signed them, or they were from church or church lads brigade or all sorts of uh, local community uh, associations or groups. People tended to join up together and go off to Maidstone or the Royal West Kent Depot down at Tunbridge and join up there. So, you know, like everywhere, it was a bit of a varied picture with, with peaks and troughs. One thing they did try and use locally was letters of men who were already serving and saying what, either they were in training and saying, you know, this food is great, you can't believe what we get for breakfast, lunch and tea, and I'm actually quite enjoying the life now. Or you get men who are at the front quite early on writing home and, and appealing for uh, fresh recruits and, and being quite realistic about the realities of, of, of war. 
Um, there's one charming story, actually, where the, there appears after one recruitment meeting to have been a, a wave of patriotism throughout um, the community of cyclist errand boys uh, in, the, in the town. And uh, they all try and join the Kent Cyclist Battalion, but are turned down because they're too young and too small. So there's a, there's a, you know, there's a range of people trying to join different regiments, primor- primarily the, uh, the Royal West Kents. But, you know, the local recruiting officer, it was made clear, would direct people to certain regiments if they had a particular connection or, or fondness for them. So obviously with the with voluntary recruitment ending in, in, in March 1916 and the introduction of conscription, how did that shape local recruitment? Well, I think obviously you get the tribunal uh, system set up, which is fascinating for us to look at um, here in Kent. Obviously, a lot of the records of the tribunals themselves don't exist. Um, but the, the local papers, the Kent Messenger and the Seven Oaks Chronicle, were terrific in recording both the, on the, you know, the detail of the local tribunals as well as the, uh, the county uh, tribunals where appeals were heard. And so you can get some fascinating glimpses into people and why they were seeking deferment or exemption um, and, and, and similar. And also, I mean, many of these men got initial, if they did get a deferment or something like that, they actually joined the, uh, joined the armed forces later on to, to do their bid. But it's fascinating to get an insight into those who were uh, looking to seek uh, exemption on grounds of conscientious objection. And we have uh, several men, but one in particular, George Tester, who joined the non-combatant corps. um, And he was serving with them. And then he was asked at one point to help unload some munitions. And at that point, he refuses and says, I am not. Uh, I, I'm not prepared to do that or help in, in that aspect of, of the war effort. And so he's prosecuted and he ends up, I think, in Wormwood Scrubs and, and in Dartmoor Prison later on. Um, and what's great is, is George recorded his, he wrote about this. He wrote contemporary diaries and he wrote uh, after the war about his experience and, and what that was like. And then the interesting thing about this was that his daughter, much later in life, uh, when she was in her 80s, I think, was part of a reminiscence project down in Somerset where she moved to. And she talks about her father refusing uh, to fight and, and what happened to the family that was left behind and how she and her mother uh, and her uh, brother were ostracised, even by, and George obviously was he was a member of the Divine Baptist Church, he was an ardent churchgoer and his objection came from his religious belief and how they were ostracized uh, even in church you know the church was incredibly silent as a family walked down to their pew or they'd be walking in in the road home and uh, you know the builders might shout um, abuse to their her mother and so on and I think you have to remember that actually you know the the Tester family lived just around the corner from Cobden Road in Hartsland, uh, in Hartsland's area. And this is a place where so many people, by suddenly by 1916, uh, are losing loved ones. And so this family of conscious objectors are living right in the heart of that and making that stand. And I think his daughter recalls at one point, his, his, her mother in particular despair one evening and just kneeling down by the grate and praying because obviously there was no income coming in or anything like that. And as she was doing that, I heard the letterbox uh, flap and went to see what had been put in. And someone had left uh, a five pound note. And then gradually she began to be able to get word. 
But the tribunals are a fascinating uh, insight. Certainly some men have tried to enlist under the, the Derby scheme uh, beforehand. We do have some other men as well who were conscripted, a couple actually, who arrive at the front and, and literally die before they've seen anything. They were being passed as fit when they really weren't and, and no one had expected them to be to be called up. So there are all sorts of uh, local stories involved in that period. Talking of local stories, were there any um, stories that came that you came across about men who, who from the Seven Oaks area who served at the front? Yes, I mean, there's far too many to mention, but um, certainly there's one uh, chap called Cedric Foskett Gordon. Um, he survived the war. He had three other brothers uh, serving. Uh, Thomas, who was with the Royal Engineers, who survived. Uh, Donald, who dies, I think, on the 3rd of July at the Somme. Um, and Bernard Gordon, who was 18 and, and died in a flying accident um, whilst he was with the RFC in, in the north of England. But uh, Cedric survives and is just the most extraordinary character. He's the, uh, obviously we have a, a website and, and Twitter for our World War One project. And Cedric is the person that I get the most correspondence about because he lived to about uh, 89 and, and died in the late 1970s. He was uh, serving, he was a captain of the North Staths Regiment uh, on the outbreak of war. And uh, he, he goes to France and he generally has a good war. Uh, he had a letter which was published in The Times anonymously and which detailed his exploits leading to the, uh, the award of his MC. But uh, later, about 1915, I think, he, is, um, he loses his leg. He loses the left leg. And I think for most, a lot of people, that would have been the end of, of their war. They could go home having won the MC and, you know, sort of retired uh, into the home front with, with honour. But actually, Cedric gets a, a wooden leg um, and becomes an observer and gunner with the, uh, with the Royal Flying Corps. And later after the war, he actually becomes a, a pilot himself. He goes and fights uh, against the uh, Russians in, in 1919. He later goes to China, and there are all sorts of terrific stories about, you know, Cedric, you know, a, a bullet going and, and smashing his um, wooden leg whilst he was up on one flight, and he, he comes back down and has to, you know, has to wait until the camp carpenter makes him a new leg, and just his attitude, and he didn't have children, he didn't marry, but he encouraged so many people later by his involvement in the scouting movement and so on. But he's a he's a, a an inspirational figure that a lot of people of a certain age in Seven Oaks um, still remember. And then there are all sorts of men like uh, Jack Winty. I think Jack's story is interesting because he illustrates a more general point in that he was the son of a draper uh, in Seven Oaks, the sort of son of a newly emerging uh, middle class, perhaps or lower middle class, and he. Um, he joins up as a private uh, with the Royal West Kent Regiment, the 7th Battalion, I think. And he's at Troneswood with, uh, on the Somme with, uh, when some seven, other Seven Oaks men are killed. And he actually applies for his commission as commissioned into the East Surreys. Uh, Jack Winty generally has a good war. He wins the MC. And I think he's a good example of one of those people who becomes a sort of temporary gentleman. And, uh, yeah, he returned back uh, home after the war. His brother was uh, a mechanic, I think, with the RFC. And they both returned to the family business. Both died in the late 1930s. They were only in their 40s. And I think, you know, obviously we talk about names or war memorials and things like that. But some of these men are also the, the hidden casualties. And they didn't 
achieve their full potential. Their lives were cut short by what they've been involved with. And I think Jack not only is a good example of both that sort of rising through the ranks and, and the army promoting on merit, um, which helps us, you know, ultimately contributed contributed to us uh, being able to win the war. But he's he's, he's a fascinating uh, man in his own right. So, what happened on the home front in Seven Oaks during the Great War? It's interesting because this fairly quiet uh, market town, all of a sudden, changes pretty quickly because you know, as well as the regular sort of privations, Seven Oaks was uh, a large area, and lots of men were from you know, other regiments in the north of England in particular were camped here uh, before leaving for the front. You know, Seven Oaks is pretty much a staging post on, on the way to the coast. And so you had thousands of men uh, camped in nearby North Park or all sorts of other open spaces and with in local houses as well, obviously. So the uh, we had lots of uh, Lancashire regiments and Liverpool regiments and things like that. And the local paper at one point writes a guide to you know the, the men of the north and, and how you how you speak to them and uh, what they mean and they don't mean any offence if they don't raise their cap as we would do and all of that sort of thing. Um, it's you know a, a, a time of real change and churn in the local community. And of course we receive Belgian refugees as well. And the local VAD hospitals, there were about 10 in Sevenoaks and, and the surrounding area, uh, they began to receive not only the early British wounded, wounded but also um, those from, from uh, Belgium. And that's interesting, uh, an interesting aspect of the war that we've been exploring. Several of these uh, Belgians, I mean, obviously many of them were found work or um, relief and, and charity campaign uh, went on. Um, but a number of these men married local women, and we're exploring, that's one of the things that we're exploring at the moment and trying to um, look at their stories in a bit more depth. There was one chap, Emil de Costa, who um, comes from St. Nicholas in uh, Flanders, and he is an early arrival at one of the local VAD hospitals, and he meets at some point a woman called Rosina Kaplan, and Rosina is... And she's a singer. She's an entertainer. She appears in local uh, events and, and things like that. And obviously she was perhaps doing something in, in the hospital that led her to, to meet Emil. And they marry. And the sad thing is that um, Emil goes uh, to Germany as part I think, of the army of occupation and, um, and dies there by drowning. And the Chronicle uh, local paper records his widow's story. She does something extraordinary. After he dies, she goes to Germany and she goes to various towns and she tries to find people who are at the funeral and where her husband's body is. And she's recorded as saying, I'm going to take his body back to his uh, hometown or we're going to bring it back here to Sevenoaks. And actually, she uh, she gets his body back to St. Nicholas in uh, in Belgium. And what's been very nice is we've been able to uh, work with local researchers there. So we now have photos of him, of his grave, of their wedding and all sorts. And he's remembered in our parish church of St. Nicholas, actually. He's uh, remembered on their family grave. And she uh, lived on until about 1948, but she was always posting uh, a memorial to him in the paper on the anniversary of his death. And it's just one story of how people's lives were absolutely changed on, on the home front through different populations, different people uh, coming in as a result of the conflict. So what sort of casualties did the Great War claim um, from local residents, both male and female, in the Seven Oaks areas? 
we have on the war memorial around uh, I think 226 uh, men and most are attributed to a regiment. There are about six who aren't, and we know most of those, but there are a couple who uh, remain elusive, and we're, we're still trying to track down. But 226 on the Seven Oaks War Memorial at the Vine, which is quite a striking uh, war memorial, uh, was unveiled in uh, October 1920. And then you obviously have lower numbers in the surrounding um, villages and, and, and the rest of the district. Uh, we don't have any female casualties. There are obviously terrific stories of, of women who nursed and um, women who worked in munitions factories or ran YMCA canteens and, and so on. Gladys Chapman was one woman who went up to work at the munitions factories in Abbey Wood uh, and basically a spark started a fire in, in around crates of bullets and, and she received the British Empire Medal for her role in, in putting that out. So no women actually died as a result of the conflict but they were honoured and recognised either for running VAD hospitals or munitions work or, or something like that. And then they, of those names, I mean, the, the, they tell a lot of very sad stories for the, the many, well, for every family, but, but some in particular. I mean, the Copper family lose one brother every year from 1915 onwards and a brother-in-law and two first cousins. And you know, the impact on the women who were left behind to, to bring up their children. They also had other brothers who, who did serve and came back. And there was one, Stephen Copper, who served again with the Royal West Kent Regiment and uh, and lost an arm. And I very sort of sympathetically asked his son, who's still around in his 80s, oh, what, did you, what did your dad do? How did he cope? And he said, oh, well, he just drove a motorbike as a delivery man for the, for the local butchers. So, you know, they, they were, it was an interesting, um, an interesting story of what that family went and how the men and women who uh, were left um, survived, but yeah, so many, uh, so many casualties. First day of the Somme, obviously, um, and you know all of the sort of significant battles. Men are represented on that war memorial, and we hope our website and books tell their story, you know, appropriately. And so, what was the legacy of the Great War in Seven Oaks, and how does the community remember the service and sacrifice of its population? I think the immediate legacy was. One, as I touched on there with the Copper family, really, all those brothers who died, you know, they left widows, they left young children. There was one young chap in, well, actually an older chap in uh, who worked at Knoll House as a uh, wicket porter and taking in luggage and that sort of thing, really, when the great and good arrived. And he lived there with his uh, wife and two children. He dies in India of natural causes, but his the Sackville family still employ his wife doing his job and, until the 1930s. So there were numbers of local employees who were very generous to, towards women, but obviously other families struggled. Other families struggled with the impact on, on the men who came back. You know, there are a number of instances of, of shell shock, of early death, of drink and, and suicide. So that's a, an immediate sort of impact. I think socially as well, you see the decline of the great houses and the changes to land owning with the death of the heirs to the great estates um, of Seven Oaks and, and around. So you have Lord Hillingdon's sons um, over at Seal uh, dying. You have uh, all sorts of, of people who um, don't come back. And so it alters the nature of, of land owning and that many of these great houses are lost in the 30s, something like that. You have others like Noel that survived because uh, Lord Sackville eventually donated to the National Trust. 
So there's a real change on, on family circumstance and there's a real change on the social structure, if you like, of, of the town. And so what sort of work have you been doing as part of the Seven Oaks and the Great War project over the centenary and also post-centenary? Well, the first thing that we wanted to do uh, was trace as many descendants of the men as possible. And that's we managed to get a good number, about 70 or 80 or so, to a special service in August 2014 at the war memorial and there's a great photo of that um, on our website and brought all of these people together and the terrific thing is they either connected with other family members they'd lost touch with and people had photos and, and other memorabilia and we were able to tell the stories and we use social media we use twitter we use um, facebook and our own website we i was asked to write a regular column in 2014 in the seven chronicle every week and that's another great way of, of getting people to get involved and help share information. So that's been a, a, a great part of it, finding those um, stories and bringing those people together. Um, and I think that's how we've continued in that vein, really, um, to link to the bigger picture as well. We're really trying to connect with other local researchers. Um, there's Pam Mills in uh, Tunbridge nearby, who's just written uh, Military Matters in Tunbridge, a book that focuses on, on the Great War in, in Tunbridge. People are doing great things in nearby Platt, um, uh, St Mary's there, and looking at their local communities, how they interact. There's recent books on uh, women's suffrage in Kent. A lot of those people were also women who are involved in nursing or um, in other aspects of, of the war. So there's lots of crossover, and we've been trying to create a real um, legacy that anyone can access online and then through our books and, and other media. Um, just to share these stories, really. I mean, I, I started this off because I wanted the Seven Oaks book and the Seven Oaks book wasn't there. And so I've ended up writing it. Um, but the most important thing for us always is to tell these stories and, and make sure they're, they're not lost and make sure we tell the story of the women and the home front as much as we do as, as the men who served. Which brings us to the final question is, where can people find out about these stories? Well, we have our own website, which is uh, sevenoaksww1.org. And we're also on Twitter, which is at number seven oaks ww one And, uh, you know, if you, if you just search for those, they'll, they'll come up. Um, and our book, our most recent book, Seven Oaks, The Great War and Its Legacy, is available. Um, I must shout out to the brilliant Seven Oaks Bookshop, which is a marvellous independent bookshop, which, like all bookshops, is having to adapt in, in these difficult times. Um, you can get our book from there. You can get it direct from us, from our website, um, also from Amazon and eBay as well. So, Matthew, thank you very much for your time. Tom, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.